carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. morning. The Lord be with you. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you once more for this day that you have made. Now in the hearing of your word, help us to grasp that word which you have for us to be encouraged and challenged to more faithfully walk in obedience with you and with your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week, we saw that Jesus enjoyed immense popularity as he began his ministry. Jesus proclaimed the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God in him. And people could not get enough of his teaching with authority, his casting out of unclean spirits and demons, and his miraculous healings of the sick. And so, when Jesus comes back to Capernaum in today's reading, it's not surprising that the news of his presence spreads quickly and everyone shows up once more at, his, uh, at the house, uh, probably meaning Peter's house. In the synagogue, Jesus' first sermon had been interrupted by a heckler. This time, his home Bible study is interrupted by falling debris from the ceiling as a paralytic, just imagine, as a paralytic is being lowered on a bed by four men who have apparently resorted to desperate measures to get the attention of Jesus. Had we been there, we would likely be gaping awestruck at the enormously large gaping hole as the man is being lowered. But before Peter or Mrs. Peter or Peter's mother-in-law can say anything, before anyone can recover from the shock of what is happening, Jesus says something even more astonishing. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. At those words, the scribes, the experts in the law and the Bible, they are offended by these words 
by someone who they dismiss as this, this man. He's not even an ordained rabbi. That this guy would dare to blaspheme by forgiving sins, something that only God can do. Now, I think there are basically two ways to commit blasphemy. One is to say God is less than God. For example, we are taught to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We're also taught in the Ten Commandments, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So when we use the name of Jesus Christ as an exclamation, as an interjection in moments of anger, or when we carelessly toss out words like, oh my God, or gosh darn it, that is making God less than life. We use those words as if God means nothing. That's one way of speaking less about God than who God is. The other way of committing blasphemy is to make humans more than human. So the scribes are not wrong when they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, for Jesus said, son, your sons are forgiven, because only God can say those words. Jesus should not be elevating himself to the level of God. And yet that is precisely what Jesus has done. He makes no apologies. He says in verse 10, we read, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He claims this authority for himself. And to prove his point, he asks this question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Practically speaking, from a human perspective, it is harder to say to someone, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Because paralyzed people, we know, they do not simply stand up and begin to walk at the command of our words. To say your sins are forgiven is easier because really there's no way to verify that. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. At worst, we're just, you know, blaspheming. The argument Jesus seems to be making here is that since or if I can do something that is seemingly more difficult, that is to make this man rise up and walk, then certainly I should be able to do what is seemingly easier, that is to forgive sins. Now, just a little quick word study here. The word translated as forgiven here, its primary meaning is not forgive. Its primary meaning, if you look in the dictionary, it's actually the first meaning is to send away, to send away. And so perhaps a better sense of what Jesus is saying here is, which is easier, to send a man's sin away or to send a man on his way? What's easier, to send his sins away or to send a man on his way back home? And to everyone's amazement, the man stands up, he picks up his bed, his mat, and he walks out and goes home. And Mark concludes, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They're amazed because Jesus has the authority to send sins away as easily as he can send this man away, just as he had sent the unclean spirits away and the demons away and the fevers away. He has the authority to send things away. Now, as modern people, 
hearing this story. We are focused on, or we wonder about how a paralytic, someone who is unable to walk, is able to all of a sudden stand up and begin walking. We stumble over this, the, the, the how of this physical miracle. But as far as Mark's interests go, the more important question, the more difficult question, is who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I want to think about that with you a bit today. Hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking, suppose my wife is out running errands and she's running a little late and so she calls me and she asks me, can you vacuum the house because we're having guests come over in the evening for a Bible study? Now suppose, hypothetically speaking, I forget and I don't vacuum the house and she comes home, she sees that the house hasn't been cleaned and the guests are about to arrive any minute and so there's no time to clean the house. Again, purely hypothetical here. Imagine what's going to happen next. I would say to her, honey, I'm sorry, but I forgot the vacuum. And she would say to me, that's all right, I forgive you. And we have a wonderful Bible study in the evening. Now imagine, hypothetically, that I don't say sorry, or that I do say sorry, but she's angry with me and will not forgive me. And so just imagine, next day, I go to the grocery store, minding my own business, I buy my groceries, I go to the cashier, a cashier whom I have never seen before, and as I'm checking out, instead of saying to me, that will be $9.99 for your two bags of party-sized Lay's potato chips, <laughs> instead, the cashier who I don't know says to me, your sins are forgiven. Now, that would creep me out a little bit, <laughs> but would that make me feel better to have a stranger say to me, your sins are forgiven? Maybe a little, right? Maybe a little. But does that mean in any way that my sins are actually forgiven? Of course not. No. Absolutely not. To be forgiven, I have to apologize to the one that I have wronged. And the one who has been wronged has to be the one to dispense that word of forgiveness, right? That's how forgiveness works. The one who did something wrong has to say sorry to the one that they wronged, and then that person has all the power. That's the person who has to say to you, you're forgiven. That's the way it's supposed to work. According to an old Jewish uh, ritual, you're supposed to go and ask for forgiveness three times. You go to someone and you ask for forgiveness. And if they will not forgive you or if they cannot forgive you, then you have to go back a second time at a later time and ask for forgiveness again. If you are refused a second time to be forgiven, you have to wait and go a third time. If after the third time you are still unforgiven, then you go to the temple and you ask the priest for forgiveness from God. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, in the case of this paralytic, no one is asking for forgiveness. And as far as we know, there is nothing that this man has done against Jesus for Jesus to be the one to forgive him. 
And technically speaking, Jesus does not even have the authority to declare a word of forgiveness because he is not a temple priest. And yet, that's what Jesus does. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. He not only declares his sins are forgiven, as a temple priest might declare, but he claims the authority to forgive sins himself. And he proves that by healing the paralytic. So if Jesus does what only God can do, then what are we to conclude about who Jesus is? Now, I know that um, people come to faith through a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons. And uh, a couple Saturdays ago, I was reminded uh, for myself um, that it was this question of forgiveness that led me to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I used to think that this is the way that everyone, of course, this is the question that everyone has, um, but I realized that maybe I'm just a little bit different. Um, so a couple Saturdays ago, um, I was at the uh, Saturday morning prayer meeting. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you, I don't want to discourage you from coming to prayer meeting because this is not what we usually talk about. So after the prayer meeting, uh, some of us were gathered around drinking coffee and somehow the topic got, uh, became about books. And so people were sharing like different books that had influenced them, books that they liked. Someone mentioned how um, reading The Lonesome Dove had been so wonderful uh, for them. Uh, someone else mentioned uh, Christian romance books. And uh, I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently it is. Um, and then someone said that uh, they didn't like Dostoevsky. Fair enough. Um, and then someone asked me, or perhaps someone uh, made the mistake of asking me, why I liked his novels so much. Now, those of you who are there, uh, you've heard already uh, what I'm about to share, so please bear with me. I've said before, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, that in my opinion, just, just my opinion, that Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, is the greatest novel ever. Uh, and to clarify, uh, I would like, I should say, I, I liken his novel, its greatness, to the greatness of something like, uh, like the classic movie Citizen Kane. It's a great movie for a lot of historical reasons, right? Because it, it was a trailblazer in terms of like storytelling and cinematography and, and all of that. Um, and you know, there's, there's that great reveal uh, at the end of, of Rosebud. Um, but it's also a very old movie. It's black and white. And uh, though the title may be familiar, I doubt many people have ever seen it or want to see it at this point. So I can completely understand that no one wants to read Crime and Punishment. Uh, it's been more than a few years since uh, I, I reread it as well. Uh, but the reason that I'm so fond of that particular novel is that it so satisfyingly answered a fundamental question that I had about the meaning of life uh, as I began my faith journey in college. So let me, uh, indulge me here, let me explain a little bit. In the novel, the main character, Raskolnikov, is a very poor, poor, poor student. Uh, he, he's just struggling to make ends meet, he can't pay for uh, his classes, and he asks himself this question, he asks, he wonders, 
wouldn't it be okay for me to take the life of someone, a worthless human being who adds no value to society, this person who is basically leeching off society, wouldn't it be okay or even good to take their life, take their money, and use that money for something better, such as pay for my education, so that in the future, I can help humanity. He further wonders that the, in, in history, that the great people of history, and here he's thinking of people like Napoleon, they weren't afraid to commit what we would call crimes because of some greater good. And so he wonders to himself, am I one of these people who can cross these boundaries so that I can help humankind in the future? Am I not even obligated to destroy this person and take their resources so that I can help humanity? I and mean, that, that's the way he's kind of reasoning these things. And so he plans out this uh, scheme and he murders this uh, moneylender. And in the process, uh, her sister shows up, which he didn't expect. And he ends up murdering two people, takes some of the money, and gets away. But afterwards, he suffers incredibly badly from guilt for having committed these crimes. And it's this feeling of guilt that makes him realize that he is not one of these great people that he will never be one of these great people because he feels guilt. And that makes him feel even worse. But it is precisely this feeling, this ability to feel guilt, which he considers a weakness, that will be the source of his eventual redemption. The novel affirmed for me what I knew in my own heart that every crime, small and great, that every sin that we commit against someone else must and demands a punishment. Not primarily for the sake of justice, but for the cleansing of the conscience. Because there's this burden of guilt that we carry, or that I carried, that I knew when I did something wrong. A criminal, a, a sinner needs punishment not simply to comply with, with civil or moral legal codes, but because there is this deeper spiritual longing for it. And this is why Raskolnikov in the novel unconsciously leaves behind clues for his crime. It's not only that he is an amateurish, clumsy criminal, but there is this subconscious desire to get caught and be punished. He does not realize it at first, but he will come to understand that without punishment for his crimes, there can be no freedom from this burden of guilt that he carries. This theme, you know, it appears in quite a few different places. Uh, one, for example, in a more recent novel that I know uh, some of you have uh, enjoyed uh, is in The Kite Runner by uh, Khalid Hosseini. Um, and again, if you know that story, in that story, the main character, Amir, during his childhood, uh, in Afghanistan, he witnesses his best friend, really, uh, getting tortured, tortured, and he does nothing about it because he's afraid, and he suffers from not having done anything throughout his entire life, and so after 20 years, 20 years, 
he's able to go back. There's an opportunity comes up to go back to a Taliban-led Afghanistan to, to rescue a, a child, to atone in his mind, to atone for this sin of betrayal and cowardice. But while there, he meets the same sadistic bully who had tortured his friend in his childhood, and he now faces torture as well. And here's the same great psychological, spiritual truth that Dostoevsky had. During the fight, as Amir is getting pummeled, as his bones are being broken, as it's not even clear if he's going to live or die from the punishment that he's receiving, he suddenly starts to laugh. And here's what Hosseini writes. It hurt to laugh. It hurt my jaws, my ribs, my throat, but I was laughing and laughing. And the harder I laughed, the harder he kicked me, punched me, scratched me. What was so funny was that for the first time since the winter of 1975, I felt at peace. I laughed because I saw that in some hidden nook in a corner of my mind, I'd even been looking forward to this. My body was broken, just how badly I wouldn't find out until later, but I felt healed, healed at last. I laughed. He's not crazy. You see, it's the same insight as Dostoevsky. He wants to be punished for his crimes. He, he needs to be punished for the guilt that he's been carrying all those years. A fitting punishment for his crime of betrayal. And in being punished in this physical way, he feels at peace. He feels that he's being healed. Both novelists understood that if there is to be freedom and even laughter and joy and healing, there must be punishment for the crimes that have been committed. And this is why repentance is so vital without which we cannot truly live. That's the biblical narrative. The alternative is a worldly narrative in which guilt and punishment become irrelevant. One answer, for example, can be found in a 2005 movie called Matchpoint. The movie, it's a reworking of crime and punishment. It's crime and punishment set in the 20th century. It's the same story, but without God. It's as if the director asked himself, what would the story of crime and punishment be like if we took God out of the equation? And then you get this story. In the movie, the main character, not incidentally named Christopher, Christ Carrier, commits a double murder, just like in Crime and Punishment, not to achieve some greater theoretical good for humanity, but to hide an affair that he's having and to protect his material assets. Unlike Raskolnikov and Amir, Christopher is convinced that there is no God and that life and that life is simply a matter of random events. And in such a world, he sees no need for guilt, no way to even really define crime, and certainly no need for punishment of any sort 
for crime. In an early scene, he and a woman who are both engaged to be married to, to two other people consider having an affair and they look at each other and they ask, do you feel guilty? Do you feel guilty? They don't answer, but they start to kiss and do some other stuff. And it's clear that they have no sense or feeling of guilt for what they're about to do, betraying their fiancés. For Christopher, this tennis pro, life is merely chance. Sometimes the ball hits the net and goes over and you win. Sometimes the ball hits the net, comes back on your own court, and you lose. It's just chance. There is no God, no conventional morality, no ultimate meaning or purpose to life. It's just random. So he easily commits a double murder to secure his own financial material future, and he seemingly gets away with both murderers by luck. But he does not get to live happily ever after. After the murders, he has a dream in which the two women that he has murdered come talking to him, and one of them says to him, your murders were sloppy. It's almost as if you wanted to get caught. Right? It's the same story. And this is what he says. It would be fitting if I were apprehended and punished. At least there would be some small sign of justice, some small measure of hope for the possibility of meaning. You see? He gets away with it because of a seeming lucky bounce, but actually getting away was the worst thing that could have happened to him. Being caught and being in prison would have been better for him because it would have proved to him that, yes, maybe there is some possibility that life is not just simply meaningless. But now, because he didn't get caught, he thinks there is no possibility of meaning. And he has to live with that. So all he can look forward to in life now is increasing his material comforts. That's it. This is what the world is offering. There is no God. There is no purpose. Life is simply chance. There is no need for forgiveness. So the best that you can do, the best you can hope for, is to upgrade your possessions. That's where the story ends up. Now, I can't prove to you that that's, not, that's wrong. No more than I can prove to you that God is real. But I know, at least for myself, that, that if I'm honest with myself, that there is in me this, this longing to be forgiven for what I know I have done wrong. And I want to forgive those who I consider to have wronged me. That, that's in my heart. I can't get away from that. Now, whether you want to attribute that to evolutionary biology or whatever, whatever but I, I can't get away from that. And the scriptures give me, gives me an answer. It gives me an answer. That the things that I have committed that are wrong, that I want forgiveness for, and that I want to forgive others for, it, it doesn't have to be something as extreme as murder, obviously, here. But haven't, haven't you all experienced those moments? Haven't you had the, the longing for forgiveness and for redemption?
<laughs> Isn't that why you're here? This is why Jesus' words, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. It's so shocking and so wonderful. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, which we're going to see more fully revealed in the coming weeks and in the coming chapters. This is why Jesus' call to repent is such good news. For our sins, there is forgiveness. We can find forgiveness without being pummeled, you know, nearly to death like a mirror. We can discover, as Raskolnikov discovers, that there is forgiveness and redemption possible by grace. It doesn't mean that, you know, we, we, we get away from our sins or that there's no consequences. Like, you know, it's not like sweeping their sins under some giant cosmic rug. There will be an enormous cost to forgive for God. But what Jesus is telling us here is that your sins can be and are forgiven. That's what the paralytic discovered. And I know this was a, was a long way, but that's what I discovered um, in college. And that's what led me to faith, to know that there is forgiveness. The paralytic believed the first word about forgiveness of sins, and that enabled him then to obey the second word, to believe the second word, to get up and to walk home. And I'm confident that as he found himself standing, that he was able to then believe the first word of forgiveness even more, right? As, as we obey God's word, we become more convinced of God's word. Let me, let me close with this. Um, as far as I can recall, the last time I preached on this passage was about 15 years ago. And when I gave the message then, I borrowed the phrase from a commentator, which at the time I thought was great, and which I read it again, and I thought, oh, this is really, really good. And I think it's, uh, I think it's worth hearing again. And, and that is this. Four of a kind beats a full house. Four of a kind beats a full house. You see, the paralytic had the problem not only of his illness, but the crowd that had gathered around the house, right? A full house kept him from seeing Jesus, right? If the crowd had been more attentive or kinder, if they had let him cut in line, the whole ripping the roof off the house, that never would have happened. But we know that crowds are rarely kind. And what he discovered and what we discover is that in life, as in poker, four of a kind beats a full house. I would say to you, unlike poker, that three of a kind beats a full house. And even two of a kind beats a full house. We don't know anything about this paralyzed man. We don't know if he even wanted to see Jesus or if he even wanted to get healed or even if he thought he could be healed. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You see, notice that it says that Jesus sees their faith. Right? That, that's, that's maybe the most important word here. He sees their faith, not his faith. Jesus is impressed by their collective faith, whether it includes the man or not, we don't know. 
Now, I know that we, we typically think about faith as kind of this uh, trust or belief uh, in the miraculous or something like that. That's not wrong. But here, the faith that Jesus sees really is not that kind of faith as much as it is faithfulness. What Jesus saw was that these four were faithful to the fifth. They have set aside convention. They have ignored the good sense to wait in line or wait until everyone, the crowds had dispersed to care for their friend. Jesus saw that they had rightly understood the Torah, the law of God, to care for their neighbor and that they were willing to do whatever it took, that they were following this life of faith and faithfulness, that they were willing to do whatever it took to get help for their friend. They were willing to tear open a roof, maybe face a lawsuit, get yelled at, be embarrassed, whatever, for the sake of their friend. The man is healed and forgiven because of their collective faith. The faith of the others was instrumental in his healing and forgiveness. According to one scholar, the Gospels record 40 individuals who were healed by Jesus, and of those, 34 were brought to Jesus by others, or Jesus was taken to them. In other words, only six cases, that is 15%, did the sufferers find their way to Jesus alone. The other 85% had help. The other, the vast majority had help. And isn't this true of your own experience and your own faith? Almost every one of you here, you came to faith because of someone else. Someone prayed for you. Maybe someone invited you to meet Jesus. Some of you, your parents drag you to church every Sunday. And maybe one day, if not already, you will come to realize that you have your own faith. Maybe some of you were lost for a while and someone found you and it was their faith and their faithfulness that brought you back to your own faith. The man had problems, but he had faithful friends. And this has been my ongoing prayer for my own kids and for all of you. I pray that you will find the kind of friends, not necessarily four, but at least one, who will be willing to unroof the roof to dig through the roof, to get dirty for your sake. Someone or a group who is willing to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That when you are lacking faith, that they will surround you with the faithfulness of their faith. I pray that when you are in a position where you are uncertain of your own faith, that God will see the faith and faithfulness of those surrounding you so that you so that you can be reassured that your sins have been sent away as far as the east is from the west so far has God sent away your transgressions i proclaim to you in the name of Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven believe the good news and be at peace. Pray with me.
Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. Lord, we bless you. We worship you because you forgive all our sins and you heal our diseases. Help us to believe your word and in believing to be faithful. Help us join the four in faithfulness and when we can't be a part of the four, would you surround us with those who have faith and are faithful and so lead us back to you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.